Mm, that reminds me of um, something that Flume said, which is uh, he will write a song, like a beat, and then he'll send it to a vocalist, and then they'll do vocals over it, and then he'll completely just remove the original song that they uh, did vocals for and write a brand new song for the vocals so that the that the song just fits the vocals like a glove. That's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. I like that. Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm his manager, Anand Harsh, coming to you live from Disneyland, the super spreader event of the summer where I just kissed Goofy on the mouth for a full 20 seconds and then coughed onto a toddler's churro. Bill's guest today is Brian Taylor, an Austin, Texas-based filmmaker, best known for writing and directing Crank and Crank 2, adapting Grant Morrison's legendary graphic novel Happy for sci-fi starring Christopher Maloney as the hard-bitten, drug-addicted detective and Patton Oswalt as a magical floating blue unicorn. A couple of years ago, he wrote and directed the horror comedy Mom and Dad, starring the inimitable Nicolas Cage, and our boy Mr. Bill got to score the movie because Brian's son was obsessed with Bill's tutorials. You never know how showbiz is going to work. Anyway, you can watch Mom and Dad on Hulu and check out their work together. The movie is uh, just a goddamn trip. It's tons of fun. Extra special thanks to all the fans who have been supporting the podcast by subscribing on Patreon. Every bit helps keep the show going, and we've got some fun surprises in store for all the subscribers at various levels, including the bonus episode tier. Visit patreon.com slash Tunes to sign up and support us. Go to mrbillstunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Abletoneer. You get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials, so you really do get the keys to the castle with that. So, you know, go nuts. Just a quick note here. Partway through the interview, Brian's recording drops out, so we had to resort to the Zoom audio for about 10 minutes. Apologies in advance for the drop-in quality, but we're all human, technology is a bitch, and life is pain. So, you know, Grin and Barrett, we'll all get through this together. Enjoy this episode with writer, director, and producer, and all-around rad dude, Brian Taylor. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. well fuck yeah man thanks for coming on the on the podcast um i yeah i know we haven't chatted in a while so when i hit you up i was like oh you're probably busy doing shit or whatever but yeah i'm glad that you decided to do it man it's good good to chat old whenever we chat i always find it to be interesting so i, I thought you'd be a good guest I'm a little busy but i mean uh it's kind of crazy these days there's a different standard of busy right yeah it's kind of like a more leisurely pace of life in general because you can't leave your house and stuff like that are you are you still in austin yes oh cool and um what's the situation there like on the lockdown and stuff here in texas they're basically just opening everything up so you know we drove out today to pick up some barbecue and take it home and you know it's full the streets are full all the restaurants are full basically uh uh the u.s has just decided that we're bored of coronavirus so that's kind of <laughs> so fucked we're, we're just over like, it 
all the uh, experts and whatnot, they uh, they're saying there's going to be like these second waves, right? Like then, and this happened as well, I believe, with the Spanish flu, because that seems to be the the one that everyone's likening the uh, coronavirus to. And with the Spanish flu, there was uh, second and third waves, and the second and third waves, I believe, were worse than the first one. Um, it seems like that's kind of what's going to happen again, right? Like if 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 we all or if the government really decides, I don't think it's that that they're bored of coronavirus. I think it's that they're bored of not not making as much money as they were before. So the yeah, but but, uh, but you don't make money by going out and you know hanging out at bars and eating at restaurants. You actually spend money by doing that. So I I think people are just over it. You know, well, I mean the the government makes money doing that, right? Like if people are going out to bars and spending money and stuff, that's like stimulating the economy in general. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, uh, nobody, nobody likes to be broke and, and, um, you know, you can't, you can't keep everything closed forever, but you know, there's also this attitude of just like, if we just ignore it, then it won't, then it, it'll go away. Yeah. yeah I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I don't think viruses respond well to ignorance. No, no, I don't think, that, I don't think that's at all, but I, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Fuck yeah, man. Well, um, so most of the people who listen to this podcast are mostly producers because it's, I mean, I, yeah, I started this podcast like nine months ago and pretty much since then I've, I've mostly had DJs and producers on here, but it's good to have uh, people from other industries on here to get like some different perspective and whatnot. Uh, you know, like I've had managers on here and agents and stuff like that to talk about, you know, like the, the more businessy side of the industry and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, we can have a really interesting conversation about like filmmaking and that side of things. Cause it's something that, um, yeah, a lot of people in the, in the <clears throat> music world, especially the electronic music creation side of things just have no idea about like one of the main questions I get asked or uh, at least pertaining to film stuff is like how I did mom and dad, right? Like a lot of people are, uh, ask me a lot of the time, like, how did I get that job? And like, how, how do you get a foot into the industry and I just don't know what to tell them. Like usually I just go, I don't know. Yeah. It just called me up. Yeah. I just got an email one day, which was like, uh, and it was like a really unexpected email. I remember that the morning of getting that email, I was just like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> How did this happen? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had, um, we've, we've talked about this. So I, uh, I had gotten on to your stuff, uh, through your, your YouTube tutorials on just how to use Ableton. You know, I was trying to figure out how to do, how to do a lot of that stuff. And, you know, you were like the guy on YouTube who knew everything and who could like slam 50 keystrokes down on a, on an ASCII keyboard. And all of a sudden there were like these crazy arpeggios and like (laughs) things playing that were like, how, how, how do you do that? And then, you know, from your tutorials, I came to start listening to your music and I was like, Oh, I get it. This guy's like a legit, musician who just like super smart and knows how to do everything. So I had been a fan for a long time and I can't really speak for every filmmaker, obviously, but I'm a big fan of music, of, of using composers that haven't really done scores before or or not many, you know, taking taking something from complete, a completely different sensibility and, and uh, translating it into film. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking for um, might be different than what other people are looking for. But what I would say is if you're interested in transitioning into film, then being unique, being different and really having an identifiable voice, um, that isn't just kind of like churning out bangers, 
right? For the kids. I mean, it's, you've got to have something you're doing that's, that's sort of like musical on a different level and actually identifiably unique and different. Right. Like, so, um, you know, people getting into say, or people who want to get into scoring films, you would say getting into like the contact library thing and just getting good at scoring strings and shit is like totally the wrong direction that they should be taking. I I would say so. Well, here's the thing. There's, there's a lot of guys out there who do that stuff better than you do, but there's nobody who can really do what you do. So a lot Mm -hmm. of times, um, like, like for me, one of the things that attracted me to your stuff is just your sort of breadth and depth of knowledge. You know, it kind of seemed like this guy can give me like anything, but I'm not looking for a symphonic score. I'm looking for what you do, but in terms of colors and like just the amount of paints in the paint box, I felt like I wouldn't be limited with you. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are other guys who do stuff really well, but they're only really doing one thing. So unless you want that one emotion repetitively for your whole, for your whole film, you're not really sure if you're going to get stuck. Look, a lot of guys, as you know, can do stuff that they are not known for doing. You know, there's a lot of guys out there who are doing music that they know they can sell, but they're capable of much more. And I, I, I really believe that, you know. Uh, however, unless I hear it, I don't know it. And I don't want to be in a situation where I'm going for a cinematic effect, meaning some combination of image and music that's interesting and unique and conceptual. And I have a composer who just can't get there, who just doesn't get it. He's like, well, I, I pretty much know how to do what I do. So uh, I'm not really sure how to help you. You know, you want to hear, you want to hear a certain level of eclecticism and just sort of like, like I said, like a breadth and a depth of sort of musical ideas and knowledge that make me believe that if we get into a unusual situation, we're going to be able to navigate our way out of it. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Um, so there's, you know, I think there's a handful of guys out there who I've heard who are fantastic and who would make great composers. And, and like I said, there's a lot of guys who can do the symphonic stuff or even pseudo-symphonic stuff. You know, they've been doing that their whole life and they can do it probably much better than you guys, but you can do stuff that they absolutely cannot do. Um, mm-hmm. And, and one, of the, one of the most hilarious things is trying to get a symphonic-based composer to do sort of like viable electro-sounding stuff. Because it always comes out like super flat, super corny. They just don't get it. And they don't, they don't have sort of the technical skill um, to get it. And they kind of don't have the, the attitude to really make it right either. Um, right. Because they probably because they come from such a traditional background of like uh, composing and, you know, string stuff and all that. They're into more like this clean sort of pretty or like music or or creating like the sense of darkness through their note selection versus like the tonal selection and if they do it through tonal selection the tonal selection is pretty limited to like pizzicato or like you know staccato or some some shit like that whereas in electronic music it's kind of like we have no problem throwing 50 saturators on the master and seeing what happens yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't know how to start with that or or they're starting to get into it um, and, and some of the guys are getting better and better at it. You know, they've got the tools and they're starting to listen more and, and figure all that stuff out. But, but they're years and years away from where guys like you who are at the forefront of this and really get it. You know, they, uh, you know another aspect of it is, is the sound design aspect. And we've talked about that a lot. You know, this is what, one of the things that really made me think that you in particular would, would be really c- cool for movies is you take such a sound design approach to your music. Mm. So when you're coming on a project, I, I feel like I'm getting 
musical ideas, but I'm also getting sound design ideas. And if anybody who's listening to this has heard the mom and dad score, it's really sort of like a seamless combination of music and sound design. There are places where you really don't know if it's score or if it's sort of abstract sound design. Right. Yeah. A good example of that is where like Nicolas Cage uh, throws his son on the couch and then does the like tickly fingers thing. And it uh, plays like a granular sound that I made. And you would think that the sound designer did that, but it was actually like a part of the composition, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the sound designer, if, if you watch that movie and you're, and you're hearing a lot of unique, unique and bizarre abstract sound design, all of that is score. All of it. You know, the, the actual sound design portion of the movie was, was very traditional. Right, right. Um, so I guess going back to the original question about like if people in electronic music uh, want to get into film scoring or video game stuff or, you know, so somewhere on that side of the industry, uh, the best way to do it would just be for them to stick in their lane and just maybe, you know, do some sound replacement stuff and upload it on YouTube to create some form of online portfolio or something like that or... What, what would you say is like the best move for someone who's trying to get their foot into that industry? Because I don't know the answer at all. Like every time somebody asks me, like I said, I just say, I don't know, man. I just got an email one day. Um, yeah. By the way, um, before I answer that, my I just looked over and I saw that my DAW has stopped recording and I'm not really sure when it stopped recording or why. Oh, shit. Well, that's all right. I'm recording Zoom as well, which means we have a backup. So um, it's not ideal, but... Uh, yeah, if you just start recording somewhere else in the door and just hit go again, uh, we should be fine to create a compilation of recordings. Okay. Yeah, and, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't get a lot of that, but that's okay. I got it all through Zoom, so um, we okay. have a we have a backup. But it, yeah, it's better if you can record your door. So if you could just like click somewhere else and just start yeah, no, recording. it's 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 recording again. But I know I missed a huge block of that. Anyway, oh, so okay. let me let me go back to your question. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be great. So personally, um, when I'm looking for a composer that I'm not familiar with their work, you know, as much different variety of stuff I can hear, um, the, you know, the more different variety of stuff I can hear, the better. And a lot of times that can become the basis of conversations, you know, you know, we'll, 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 we'll be in the process of trying to figure it all out. And I'll say, like, you did this one track that was that I heard that was kind of like had this feeling maybe you could take that kind of feeling and da, da 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 because i never like i never like with a composer to use um examples of other people's music i mean sometimes you kind of have to right uh, you're talking about like temp temp music yeah. yeah or or even just like you know what i was picturing for this scene is something sort of like and then play them someone else's music sometimes right. you end up doing that just out of laziness or convenience but um i would much rather reference your own music if possible, because mm-hmm. um, there must have been a reason why, you know, we asked you to do the project, right? So if I have to use other people's music as an example of what I want you to do, then then why did we pick you, you know? So I would much rather, if possible, um, use your own music as a reference and say, you know, you, you did this one thing on this one album or just a track that nobody's ever heard that I heard on your SoundCloud. Um, that's actually the perfect kind of feeling we want for this that's that's a great approach if you can do it right and i guess that probably helps build up some sort of like dialogue oh sorry um like uh lexicon between you and the composer too because when when i talk about the mom and dad project to a lot of people uh quite often the thing that i tell them that was the hardest thing was just us building up a a set of words 
uh, and meanings between each other that actually meant something tangible to both of us uh, that could then be translated into music, right? So for instance, when we started, uh, you're saying like, oh, it needs to be like robotic and, you know, there's static on the TV, which sort of indicates things and, and stuff like that. Um, and it took me a while to sort of figure out exactly what that meant because uh, you were saying, oh, I want like a more a more unique like static sound basically. And essentially what that ended up meaning was like small window granulization, which is, uh, you know, obviously a technical term that you probably wouldn't have heard of before that. But um, it's almost like as soon as we found that, uh, the rest of the scoring process was not that hard, but it's like, uh, so I guess in, in what you're saying, you show somebody something of their own that you think is a good example of, of what they could do for a scene. It could also like help for them to sort of like, you know, um, get a better idea of what, what it is that you want out of them without having to use like these technical terms and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of times, you know, filmmakers are composed or, uh, communicating just with, sort of non-technical, you know, color and emotion sort of verbiage, right? right. Uh, which, which depending on the composer can be totally useful, you know, but I, I come from a musical background, so I think we were able to find uh, common ground a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, you're definitely going to run into situations where there are filmmakers that don't have a musical background who are telling you like, yeah, you know, I want this scene to feel more like orange. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you're just like no i really don't you know um <laughs> uh, um that that leads me to another question actually uh like obviously as a, as a director you not only have to have that dialogue with the composer but you have to have that dialogue with the filmmakers like the uh the, the director of cinematography the clothing designers the actors like you need to understand a lot of different skill sets and a lot of different terminology from those different skill sets to really be able to communicate with all these people to to sort of get out of them what you want right uh, yeah so so at some point there's probably going to be like one of those areas where you don't know quite so much and, and you're probably going to run into some issues where there's going to be some sort of communication breakdown uh how, how often does that happen and how do you usually go about getting around those hurdles well it doesn't happen that much with me um you know, a lot of there there are some directors who take an approach of, and this is a very much a traditional kind of director's approach from like, you know, the fifties and sixties or something, is like the director is working with the actors, um, the director is 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 directing performance, and then all of the other departments are sort of doing their specialty um, to make the to make the thing shine. What that's never been my approach and i think a more modern view of directing is directors sort of these days i think have to know everything they have to know everything that everybody's doing and have to be able to do everybody's job um maybe not as well as they can but on, on, a, on a pretty high level so you know i might not be able to sew the costume very well but i can make every single decision of the costumer if i have to um you know, I can shoot the movie myself. I, I, I can pick every lens. I know where to put the lights. Uh, you need to have an incredible amount of sort of all around general knowledge and skill to do the job just to be able to answer people's questions and properly tell them what to do. Because, you know, if not, it, it feels kind of like other people are making the movie for you and you're going to get frustrated not being able to get what you want. Yeah, um, I feel that. So, so, it, so it becomes sort of like a, uh, 
it's 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 a combination of you know if you over direct people then you're not getting the best out of them because the reason that you pick these people to work with is because they're great and they have fantastic ideas and they have their own point of view so it's 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 a combination of giving people the space to really do their thing and be awesome but at the same time be very very specific about what you want um and 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 be able to answer i think every question Right. Yeah. It sounds like a tough job. It sounds like the most intense project management shit, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it could be pretty stressful. I mean, and it's just, it's kind of nonstop, you know, when you get on. Um, so, so after the movie, I, I started on this television show, Happy, which we did two seasons of. Dude, that show is sick. I actually ended up watching that. Like, uh, I binge watched it like last year or something. It's so good. It's a crazy show. And, it, and we had to make it so fast in New York. Like, Working on a television show, it makes doing even the fastest feature just seem like a vacation. Right. It's a whole different level. Right. Yeah. Because I guess like it's almost like you're producing like 10 movies, right? Because they're yeah. like hour long episodes. And it's not like the episodes are like poorly produced and boring. Like every episode keeps you engaged for an hour, which is essentially what a movie does, but for two hours. So you're essentially you're kind of making like five movies, right? Yeah, it wasn't like a trial show or something with just people talking in a room. I mean, every episode is like stunts, action, CG animated characters, drama, comedy, crazy sets, crazy, you know, wild set pieces. It was just like, it was nonstop. And literally, like, my day would start and I walk into the office and I nonstop for 14 hours, 16 hours until I'm done is just people hitting you with questions. What do you want me to do about this? What should I do here? What should I do here? You know, what color do you want this to be? What color do you want that to be? You know, what I it was just like nonstop. It's hard to really it's it's hard to really put it into words until you've lived it, but it's really exhausting, man. Mm. It's like crazy. By the time you get to the end of it, you're like, I, I got nothing else. I got no other <laughs> questions that I can answer. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, do you find though that kind of like working around a lot of other people who you respect and who you think are, you know, technically and creatively impressive and all of that stuff kind of helps you get through those 14 to 16 hour days or whatever. Cause I find if I'm in the studio by myself, which is almost all the time, um, I just say, I find it so hard to work for more than like four to six hours before I'm just fully burnt. Yeah, no, uh, you have to have a level of focus from start to finish that is really, mentally exhausting i have to say like and you know more than you, you were saying does having really talented people help having really talented people helps you get the job done having really like good people and nice people and funny people actually helps you get through the day with less stress you know says so um people who are bad at their jobs uh and who are sort of killing you because of that you can usually get rid of those people and find somebody else. We started the show. I'm not going to name names. We started the show with a different composer um, who was a talented guy, but he was completely wrong for the show. And the, the most stressful part of the day was just sort of like, you know, this was in the post process, but the most stressful part of the post process was like waiting for the new music to come in and just going like, oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And exchanging notes and trying to get it and trying to get it. And finally, I was just like, you know, we just a good guy you know i like him and he's a talented dude he's just so wrong for this project we've got to find somebody else um so even though we were way behind in the process i started all over with a search for a composer 
and ended up finding this guy, Guillaume Roussel, who's a, a French composer living in LA. And uh, I had never heard of him before. And this is an example of um, just learning about a guy from his SoundCloud and just listening to all of his samples. And then uh, getting on the phone with him, super nice guy, really easy to work with, but his music was just right on. So you kind of need both things. You need guys who kick ass and are really correct for it in terms of their skill set. And, but you also, there's no time in this business for, for douchebags or assholes or people with a lot of, you know, dude, that's what I tell a lot of people getting into the industry for DJing for sure. It's like, uh, if, even if you're like the best at what you do, if you're an asshole to work with, no one will work with you because they just don't have to. There's so many other people who can do the job. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, and it's that way at a very high level. You know, we talked about uh, Christopher Maloney was the lead actor on the show. And he's just one of the best fucking guys you'll ever meet. You know, just that's the guy who plays the, the drunk yeah. guy who sees the horse. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and he's just so cool, man. I mean, it, just one of the best people, right? In, t- in yeah. addition to being super fucking talented. And mm. when we were doing the casting process, everybody who came up, I would run them by him. And if we ran into somebody who we were considering casting, even if it was a big name, uh, and somebody who would really add value to the show. We would have that conversation of like, what are we, what are we hearing about this guy? And if we found it was somebody who had a reputation for being, you know, abusive to crew, attitude problem, we were just like, you know, it's life's too short. It's not worth it. These shows are too difficult to do. The job mm-hmm. is too difficult to have to deal with that shit too. You know, right? I also feel like if you have just good people around you, um, or if you just feel really good whilst you're doing a project. It's almost like that project exerts that feeling out of it. Like watching Happy, it makes you like you. It feels good to watch. Like it doesn't feel um, unpleasant. But whereas the opposite, it feels like is true, especially in at least music. I know for sure, where if it's a pain in the ass to make, mm. it almost just sounds hard to listen to it on the other end of it. You know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I always wondered if that was the case. Um, and I, I've certainly always tried to. You you didn't have a chance to be on set because we only worked in post, but. Mm-hmm. It may be fun, you know, the next time I'm working on something, if you want to come by and just hang out and see how the production side works. But I I definitely, it's always been a goal of mine to have an atmosphere on set that's super fun. No matter, even if we're doing dark material, just have it be super fun and everybody's, everybody is respected. Um, I'm not one of those directors who's yelling and screaming at everybody. You know, we like to keep um, a really good, feeling on set and have fun because I mean, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're making, we're making ridiculous shows. Right. So (laughs) why should we take everything crazy serious? And my hope is that, like you say, that the fun atmosphere will find its way onto the screen. I don't know if that's always the case. I mean, it it always amazes me when I hear about movies that were so troubled and everybody fucking hated each other or, or bands, you know, where the, the band wanted to kill each other and yet they were making this crazy music, you know? You look at like, uh, well, almost, well, I was going to give an example of a rock band, but it's like every rock band, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, man, the police, they fucking hated each other, and, and, but they were making like the greatest records of the eighties, you know, or these movies where you, you see the fin- the finished product of the movie and you can't understand the stories that you heard because the movie's amazing. Uh, mm. but how did they do that? Well, they were all just like, wanted to kill each other. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. 
going back to post stuff, somebody had, so I asked um, this morning, I have a Discord server and actually Ivan, your son is in my Discord server. And I wanted, I, I just asked people, I was like, hey, I'm going to uh, interview Brian Taylor. Do you want to ask him any questions? And I got a bunch of questions. Um, and somebody was asking some questions about post and seeing as we were just sort of on talking or glossing over post a little bit, I figured it would be a good point to bring that up. Um, somebody asked, uh, how long does post-production last on a film that doesn't require any VFX? So like mum and dad didn't require that much VFX, right? There was like a little bit here and there, but it's not like to the level of happy or anything like that. So how long do you think, uh, say the, the post lasted on mum and dad? It depends a lot from project to project, you know, on an independent film, like mom and dad, things can go much, much quicker. Um, on a big studio movie, things can go much longer. So it really varies a lot. I, I, you know, I, I know guys who've gotten their movie done and they did all like, uh, have you seen this movie bodied Joseph Kahn's movie? Mm -mm. So he's a friend. He's a big, big time commercial director. He's like the biggest commercial music video director out there. And he makes features every now and then just for fun. He pays for him himself, shoots him himself. And he did this movie bodied, um, around the same time I was making mom and dad. And it took us maybe three or four months to finish our post. He finished his post in like three weeks. Holy shit. You know, he would text me. He was like, yeah, I'm already done with my edit. I'm like, motherfucker, you just finished shooting like two weeks ago. How can you be done with your edit? I don't understand. But he's just super fast, you know, and, and he has nobody to answer to. It's just him, you know, so. So um, he edited the whole film himself, too. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Uh, well, I, 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 he might have had an editor, but he's very hands on. And, uh, you know, the, the point is, if the less people you have to answer to, the better, you know. So if you're doing a big studio film or a tv show or something all of your cuts have to go through the studio and you get notes back and this and that and there's also just a technical process that bigger films have to go through in terms of quality control and they're all they're a little bit behind the technology curve you know it it seems strange to say that but just to give you an example any independent filmmaker out there who's listening to this knows that you can shoot your movie, you can bring it home, you can edit the whole thing on your Mac at home. You don't need, you know, you can have all of your dailies sitting on a multi terabyte hard drive streaming in real time, and you can cut the whole thing in 4K. And you know that you can do that at home with just you. On a, on a TV show, you could never do that. Your all of your dailies go to some lab somewhere, something called a lab. It's like a leftover of when they used to have film labs. Well, now your digital dailies go to that same kind of lab. And so all of your dailies are being stored somewhere and you're editing with offlines and you're conforming everything to these offlines. And then when you actually want to do an effect or something that requires full res uh, footage, you have to pay this lab to actually give you your own footage and it's a process of telling them the time code that you want and then they have to get it to you and then you have to ingest it i mean it's like it's insane like i couldn't believe when we went to do the show i kept telling uh universal cable who was making the show it's like if you would let me just completely rebuild this post process i could do this whole show twice as fast for about you know 35 percent less money Mm -hmm. um because a lot of this is just leftover structure and people getting paid to do things that aren't really necessary anymore. Like the technologies move beyond all of this, but they kind of have these structures in place. Everybody's happy getting their checks. Nobody rocks the boat and the structure just keeps moving like this giant, you know, fucking cruise ship when like indie filmmakers are zipping around on a, on a jet ski. Um, (laughs) 
what are, uh before we go any further uh what are what are dailies and what are offlines and and all of that kind of stuff because they're terms i've never heard of before dailies is just the stuff that you shot that day okay so so in the old days the term came from you know you would shoot back when you were shooting everything on film so you'd you'd, you'd get a day in the can and back then it was literally a can because your film was rolled and thrown into a can and then you take the can and you send the can to the lab. The, the lab would do a work print. And based on that work print, they would print a set of dailies. So basically, they were making a copy of your film. So you're not editing or viewing your original film because that original film was, was priceless. You know, you can't, um, you don't want to mess that up. So they would make like a work print and then they would make dailies based off of that original film and they would send them to you. Then you could set up a screening room and you could screen the stuff that you shot yesterday. It was called dailies. So we're going to screen our dailies from yesterday and see if we fucked anything up, you know? And so you'd sit around and screen your dailies. Well, you know, obviously that was a long time ago. Uh, you don't really, there's really no meaning to dailies anymore. Um, you, there's, you're not sending your film to go get developed. Actually, you can see it as you shoot it, exactly how it's going to look digitally in its final form. You know, you know, you know exactly what you have to work with and you can screen that stuff on a laptop anytime. I, I, I've never been a guy who watches dailies. You know, I don't like to look at my dailies until months later. Um, cause I saw it while we were shooting it. And I just, I don't really want to sit and watch it anyway. That's what dailies are. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. So I had a, a, another question about composition, so, and these questions come from Discord as well. Um, there's a few questions actually. Uh, they they all have to do with post stuff, which is I guess where all the com composition happens. So somebody asks, at what stage does the composer start contributing? Uh, and then also another person asks, it might actually be the same person, saying what comes first, the edit or the or the composition. Okay, so that's a really interesting question because um, it happens in different ways. The way that it normally happens is um, you shoot the film, you edit the film, you edit the film with temp music, which means you're filling up the music and the cut with music from other movies. And then you bring on a composer and they watch it and they come up with their own ideas. Sometimes their ideas are inspired by the temp music that was there and sometimes they're completely different. But as a musician, you can imagine it's kind of a weird way to approach composition, to listen to what somebody else did and then have to come up with your own variation or basically your own argument against that. <laughs> it's a good way to think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like like you put this music from Batman in the scene. Okay, well, I'm gonna now going to make my own musical argument for why I think that this is a different way to see it in a better way. Um, that's a really weird way to do it. And that's the way it happens a lot of times. That's not the way it happened on mom and dad, because on mom and dad, we did something really unique and really fun, which is we actually had you in the post room composing as we were editing the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were able to use your raw unfinished ideas right out of your brain and immediately start slamming them into scenes and sort of building the scenes around your music and having it be sort of like a back and forth process. You know, we get, we, you've got a scene to look at. You start putting some rough ideas. We take the rough ideas, we put them into the scene, start rebuilding the scene a little bit. Then we pass it back to you and now you can enhance it even more. That's a really, really cool way to do a score and really unusual. And I, I think people should do it more, but a lot of times because of schedule and because of 
just that structure of the way things have always been, um, it doesn't work that way. However, I'll give you an example of like a really traditional great movie with a traditional great score that was done more the way that we did it. Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. Both of those movies that Spielberg did, especially E.T. is actually a better example, I think. John Williams actually composed before the cut was done, just based on the script and looking at some work print dailies and stuff like that. So they were actually able to construct the scenes around John Williams' score. Very unusual. And you know, one of the reasons why those Williams scores, when you watch the old Spielberg's movies, just seem like a character in the movie. You can't imagine the movie without that score. Well, actually, the score was there as the movie was being put together. And it and there's a reason that it feels that way. Mm, that reminds me of um, something that Flume said, which is uh, he will write a song like a beat and then he'll send it to a vocalist and then they'll do vocals over it. And then he'll completely just remove the original song that they uh, did vocals for and write a brand new song for the vocals so that the that the song just fits the vocals like a glove. That's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. I like that. Yeah, it seems kind of like a similar idea, right? It's like you kind of the the in this metaphor, the um the the visual aspect is the vocals, right? Like the main thing that you're seeing, and then you sort of like make make your that fit to the score or whatever. I, I don't know some idea. Well, but I mean, I I you know to me music, I love music. You know, like I said, I I was a musician before I was a filmmaker, so I'm really into movie music and I'm really into all kinds of music. So. You know, I don't like music to just sort of be like this generic thing over the back of the scene that kind of makes it feel like a movie. I actually really want to integrate it. Um, so there are things like in Mom and Dad, especially I think I think where we did it really well um, and really uniquely is in a lot of like the more horrifying or actiony kind of scenes like the, um, where the sound design started to get just completely insane. And it really influenced the way that we cut the scenes. Mm. You know, like we were we were cutting around the music and trying to, you know, we were using those the weird things that were happening in the sound design to influence the cut. Yeah, I can't imagine having done the whole thing um, via email or whatever, because I remember when we were first starting out, like when, when you first hit me up, I sent you like a bunch of demos in the first week or so that we were working together. And it was, you just kept being like, no, nah, that's not right. That's not right. And like kept sending me, you know, stuff that you think might be on the right track. Like I think one thing that you sent me was um, uh, the, the soundtrack from The, the Thing. Yeah. Uh, and some other stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I can't imagine having got it as, as good as we did without doing it in the same room because it, it's so hard to make a thing, send it, get feedback back adjust the thing send it back over email like it just takes so long whereas if we're in the same room it's like as it's happening it's like in plasticity phase you can kind of like adjust it with with your ideas and you know seeing the edit on the screen it's just like it just ke keeps the thing so much more in flux whilst it's being created it seems like yeah and, and we were we were even we were even i mean we were very next level in the way we did it i mean like you know you and i had workstations next to each other where i had the movie up um on uh, uh on an nle software but i also had ableton on the same system so you were literally not just giving me pieces of music but you were giving me projects you were giving me like ableton sessions so i was able to actually move tracks around and like mute things here move a little bit of that there i mean it was like this is very next level like usually directors and composers can't work together on that level yeah i mean you know well, with that level of sort of intricacy and like just really being able to fine-tune everything 
Yeah. Well, like you said, the, the technology has kind of superseded the, the old school process, right? And now it's totally possible to be sitting next to each other and sharing projects through a Dropbox folder. And like, you, I mean, it's not so hard for you to, for anyone really to just open an Ableton session and move the blocks around. I mean, it's just like, you know, Lego, basically they just all the clips are just like chunks of shit that you can just move anywhere you want. It's like not rocket yeah. science. No, it's awesome. It would be like, it would be like in the old days if they were doing scoring sessions you know, and they had an orchestra sitting in the room while they were editing in the movie and the director could just go like, okay, this, the, these four violin players here, just like you guys stand down for this part and you, I want to play a little bit less. You know what I mean? It's like, like the level of, of control and being able to really like fine tune stuff. It's, uh, it was a really, really interesting process. And it's something that I hope to emulate, you know, in future projects. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm, I'd be down to do it again for sure. I had a great time doing mom and dad. I think, um, yeah, it's something I want to do again as well. And I still, so I have the same questions as everyone else, really. It's like, I mean, just based on the way that I, that I got the initial job of working on mom and dad, just by getting a random email, it's like, I don't know how to replicate that again. Uh, but yeah. Well, it, yeah. I mean, it would, it would help if mom and dad was like a huge hit, you know, cause then right. you would get, you'd be getting tons of calls to do scoring work, but nobody really saw mom and dad. So it's like, good luck. You have to start all over from scratch. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, well, I, I wouldn't say no one saw it. I actually get a few comments all the time. Like people will be in my Instagram DMs maybe like once or twice a month being like, like, oh, cool, I didn't know you did the sound for this. And I've got a few messages here and there of people like emailing me or sending me a message on Instagram or Facebook being like, hey, I just saw mom and dad and this song at this time is really cool. Can you tell me what that is? And almost nine times out of 10, I'm like, oh yeah, that that's actually not mine. That's like <laughs> something that they just licensed. <laughs> Yeah, it, the movie was really well reviewed and, and a lot of people love it and it, it has been seen a lot, but the, but it's, it's just kind of funny because like if that movie had been like a huge hit, you'd be getting calls all the time of people who want you to, yeah, can you do something like you did on mom and dad? And you'd be mm. like, no, I'm not just going to repeat myself and do that. Like I actually like, I'll come up with something different for your movie, <laughs> you know? Right, right. But, um, I wanted to change the subject a little bit just to... Uh, to sort of like the the state of the music industry now because obviously it's changed with the virus thing um so obviously uh, a big way that movies recoup their costs is in the box office right so like in the first week that it hits the the cinema a lot of people go pay tickets 20 bucks or whatever to go see the movie which is fucking way more than anyone would ever pay for it online probably um, and then, you know, I guess the movie gets somewhat of a cut of that money and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's sort of how like a lot of the cost is recouped as far as I understand it. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So because people can't go to the theater right now, that kind of takes that whole thing out of the equation. So, so how is that affecting things in terms of the release side? I mean, I, as far as I know, you don't have a movie like in the pipe trying to get released right now, but surely you probably have friends that do, right? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I know the guy's. Uh, really well. I'm working on a project with the guys who did that Bloodshot movie that that was supposed to come out literally the first weekend that America locked down. Right? They were like, that was it was a bad weekend for those guys. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, so you've got this movie that costs like a hundred million dollars, and it's supposed to open on like three thousand screens or something like that, and it just doesn't. So you know they they've started putting stuff out online. Oh, you know they they put. Uh, they put Bloodshot and like Invisible Man, uh, and a couple other movies. You know, the Trolls World Tour was hugely successful streaming. So they're starting to put this stuff out online for people to buy, and it's done pretty well. Uh, not close to what they would have got at the box office, probably, 
but um, but it uh, it's done pretty well. So right now there's a huge sort of war in the industry over um, you know, the theaters and the streamers. Basically, the theaters because you know this virus is not going to last forever. The theaters are going to open back up and people are going to start going to movies again. But the question is, once now people are used to buying that movie at home, you know, how much is that going to hurt the theaters? How much can, can theaters ever come back from this is the question. Right. So uh, you can sort of liken that to the whole work from home thing, right? So one thing, um, so I, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I moved to San Francisco earlier this year. I didn't. And, um, you were in, yeah, were in so Colorado I, I, last time. Yeah, I live here now. So anyway, um, because Expensive. of that, I, oh, it is ex- yeah, it's super expensive. <laughs> um but I know a lot of people here who are in the tech industry, right? And what what's happened is they've all just they just all work from home now. They just don't go into an office anymore. And what the tech industry has experienced is literally that working from home does not at all affect the quality of the work that they do or how productive they can be or anything like that. So companies like Twitter are saying to their employees, well, you can just work from home forever now. We don't actually give a shit about this office thing anymore. It's obviously proven that we can get work done whilst you're at home. So let's just do that from now on. It makes more sense. There's less work commutes. Yeah. Uh, not, you know, less not, not only not only that, but the average I was reading today, the average um, workday for people working from home is like 10 hours. Mm, uh, right. oh, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. So companies are actually getting, you know, 10 hours of work for pay, for their eight hours of pay. So mm. works out pretty yeah. well for them, too. Right. Yeah, so I guess um, my point is that like, uh, just like companies in the tech industry have figured out that work from home is a viable option for getting work done, it's almost like the film industry has figured out now through this that uh, just releasing things on Netflix and skipping the whole theater industry is also a viable option. It's you know the, the uh, it's it's viable, but you know the dust hasn't cleared, so still I don't I don't think anybody really knows. Um, where it's all going to end up. Certainly something like, well, so one, one problem is immediately when this lockdown happened, Universal and Sony came out with movies that weekend. They came out with Bloodshot and The Invisible Man and that other one, um, The Hunt or something. Uh, the Bloomhouse one where the where the rednecks are getting hunted by, it, it was pretty funny actually. Um, right. And they charged 20 bucks. 20 bucks and you get the movie streaming in HD and uh, they did pretty well. People bought it. So that, that sets the price. So you can't come out now and release wonder woman two or Avengers 12 and say like, okay, well we want $49 for that. Mm. Um, Cause people are going to say like, no, you know, fuck you. You know, it's $20. I know what things cost. They cost $20. I did it before. That's kind of the way people are. You know, once you set the price in the marketplace, that's it. So, uh, so for certain things like, like those Bloomhouse movies, they, they probably did pretty good. I mean, I don't think, I don't know if that movie, The Hunt, was it called The Hunt? What the fuck was it called? I think it was called The Hunt. Uh, but I don't know if that movie would have done as well in the theaters as it did, um, on home video. It did really well on home video. Whereas for something like The Avengers, if you're taking a family of four out to go see that movie, you're actually paying $80 worth of tickets or $85 worth of tickets for something that now you get at home for 20 bucks. Mm. You know, does that math work out for these mega movies where they spent literally three or $400 million releasing the movie? 
Dude, that's um, mind blowing that people spend that much on making a movie. How like how do you even spend four hundred million dollars on a movie? I like, where, dude, where I does that know. money go? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I, that's out of my uh, that's out of my uh, I don't know. That's out of my world. I've I've I I could make you know twenty five movies for that, or yeah, probably like four hundred movies for that. I just yeah, I don't so know. I don't like, know. Right? I don't know what they spend it all on. But but yeah, so so it's it's so it's different for different kinds of movies. Like if we make if if we made a little movie like Mom and Dad, right? So that movie costs like four four million bucks or something to make, um, and we put that movie out uh, online for you know twenty bucks or even ten bucks, and it was there on your Apple TV. You know, you open up your Apple TV and it's like, okay, what's new this week? Okay, it looks like uh, you know the new Wonder Woman movie, and then here's this thing, Mom and Dad. Nick Cage. Uh, that looks pretty fucking crazy. How much is it? 10 bucks. All right, I'll watch that. So our little $4 million movie just made 10 bucks and Wonder Woman 2, which cost them 300 million to make, just made 20 bucks. <laughs> you know, so it's like, hmm, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot more stuff coming home, a lot more, a lot more things, a lot more people watching movies at home. And you're also going to see the budgets of these movies go down. Because I just don't see how you can keep spending that kind of money to put out a product that's going to be on the shelf for virtually the same price as you know something that somebody spent five bucks to make. It just doesn't. You, the math doesn't work. Right. Well, what you might see start seeing then is like you were talking about before. There's like a lot of these old systems and like archaic sort of ways of doing things uh, where there's just a bunch of people who are trying to rock the boat and get paid for, you know, not really doing what something like for, for jobs that just don't need to exist. Um, you might see a lot of that stuff being the first to get cut, I suppose. And then also what you might see is people being a little bit more uh, inventive and, uh, you know, um, resourceful with smaller amounts of money. And uh, I don't know exactly if this is the case, but it always seems like when I see a Quentin Tarantino movie that it, it, it never seems like a, it's a, there's a shitload of production going on, right? It just seems like a nice shot, nice camera, but really like what is cool about his movies is the story and the like suspense in the dialogue and all of that sort of shit. Um, so maybe you might start seeing more of that, right? Like with these and I don't, I don't know if that's that's the case. I don't know how much Quentin Tarantino spends on making movies, but well, he spent um, a lot on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'll tell you. <laughs> but I mean, like a, what? They trashed one car, and no, no, no. They had to. They, I mean, they had to build, uh, you know, sixties Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, they did a lot. They did a lot. That was a really expensive movie, um, but yeah. it was it was a good movie. Um, yeah, it was a great movie. Yeah, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, I guess we'll see. I'm actually like, it makes me wonder a little bit more about music because I know these days, um, musicians, it's so easy to get, to get music onto, into your ears or onto your phone these days that it seems like the way for musicians to make like, you know, good money is through touring. And so you know, if touring is going to start dying down, is it? I mean, if touring is going to start dying down, I know it's it's, it's probably died down now. Oh, like yeah, that makes no it really hard. At all right now, right? So that makes it really hard for guys to make money. I think it depends. I mean, so you got a lot of people who are who their their primary source of income is DJing, right? Like, or some, for a lot of my friends, that's their only source of income. Is every weekend they play shows. They play a few shows for maybe a couple of grand each and they make that money every weekend. And then out of that, they have to pay their agents and their managers and 
whatever marketing they did for the shows and all of that kind of stuff. And then they get, you know, a cut of that and they do that every single weekend. And then throughout the week they write music. So that people like that, are, yeah, they're fucked right now. But like, um, there's a lot of other ways to make money doing music, you know, like, I mean, for instance, I teach, I sell sample packs, I, um, you know, do tutorials. I sell tutorials on my website, like courses. Um, you know, I have a subscription service there. Like the, I do YouTube so you can, you can make money off YouTube videos. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to make money as a, as an independent. Elect- what, what about, what about Twitch? Can you make money on Twitch? Yeah. So I, I, I think I make not that much on Twitch, like a couple of hundred bucks a month at best or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can like, there's people who are, like, there's, there's people who do Twitch full time, you know, like that, that ninja guy is like the biggest streamer in the world. He gets like 10 million viewers a day and streams for 12 hours a day. I'm assuming that guy is making bank. Huh. Um, yeah you for sure can uh in the way of shows i just feel like it's going to be a while and it's going to be at at least until there's a vaccine before people are going to be you know huddling up in clubs together again yeah or you know wanting to be shoulder to shoulder with like twenty thousand people at coachella yeah that's for sure not going to happen until there's at least a vaccine uh it's just for starters unsafe and even if the um government allowed it and said this is okay to do I really don't think you'd see Coachella selling out. I mean, I might be wrong and I might be giving people too much of the benefit of the doubt, but um, I mean, I, I really would be surprised if I, you know, because what is that? That's 20,000 fucking idiots if they're doing that with no vaccine out there, right? It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, well, it's like you said, you know, the, the virus doesn't really care about your ideology or your the way you feel about it yeah exactly that's what i'm saying so it's like if there's no vaccine and they said yeah it's fine fuck it let's do coachella and twenty thousand people went there that's twenty thousand idiots who just aren't using their brain right but i I really think that's not the case i think we've incurred such trauma here that that there wouldn't that twenty thousand people wouldn't do that i i feel like that but again like i said i might be giving people too much benefit of the doubt yeah i'll I'll bet it I'll bet if they put Coachella on sale right now, I'll bet a lot. It might not be sold out, but it'd be it'd be pretty packed. You know, well, young young people have a feeling about this virus that they're either not going to... Yeah, I guess young people feel like this is a virus that only kills old people. So right, I'm probably going to be fine. Which it's not. Like, there's a lot of old people... Uh, sorry, young people, like, in their 30s or, you know, mid-30s or even younger, I think, who are getting it. And they heal from it and they don't die. But coming out the other end and healing from it is still not good. I mean, I had a friend who's in his early 40s who got it um, and he's he was fucked, man. He thought he was going to die for two weeks or three weeks almost. And after it, he just got over it. And his his lungs, he, he reckons his lungs feel like totally fucked. He's just still coughing up gray shit every day and like he's you know lost a bunch of uh, cardiovascular ability and stuff like that. I mean, he's pretty young. He's like 42 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's doing it's doing really really weird long term damage to people, um, to their lungs, but and even their brains. I mean, it's having like their neurological problems. People are getting from it. It's just a it's it's a nasty little bug, man. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk about some of your old films. Um, I have some questions. I, I looked on your Wikipedia page before this because I was like, oh, there's probably some interesting stuff here to talk about. Um. One of them is, uh, it was actually going back to Quentin Tarantino, I guess. He said that he thought um, Crank 2 was the Gremlins 2 of action movies. <laughs> what, what do you think he meant by that? Well, if you've seen Gremlins 2, it's kind of like Crank Crank 2 as a, as a 
Gremlins 2 was was sort of a sequel where they took it wasn't really a sequel so much as just taking everything in the in the in the first movie and just blowing it up and making it like 10 times <laughs> more absurd and ridiculous. Mm. And that's kind of what Crank 2 is. Okay. He told me that. Yeah, it was I, I was really happy to hear that. That's cool that you've talked to him. Yeah, I, I would say um, my favorite filmmakers, and this might be just the most generic answer ever, is probably Quentin Tarantino and, and Martin Scorsese. Well, those two, <laughs> they're on the Mount Rushmore, I would have to say. Is that kind of like just saying my two favorite electronic music artists is Dead Mouse and Skrillex? Right. That's pretty much what you just said, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, so who's who's like but the Dead Mr. Mouse and Billy? Skrillex are fucking great. So I, you know, I, I can't I can't argue with that. I love those guys. Oh yeah, they're they're amazing. I mean, the same with with me and and Dead Mouse and Skrillex. I have like ult- ultimate respect for what they did and what they still do. I mean, I'm so like I I don't know. Probably a lot of a lot of your listeners will um think this is a totally lame statement, but for me in that genre, I don't know if anybody's really topped the scary monsters EP. I mean, to me, that's incredible and it's still incredible. And I don't think anybody's ever done anything that remotely sounds like it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he really, Skrillex is an inventor for sure. Uh, I will say in my opinion, when that came out, yeah, it was like crazy forward thinking and there wasn't a lot out there like it at the time or if if anything. Um, And he's a real inventor. He really invented something and he's really like a forward thinker for sure. But uh i will say that i don't think that ep aged very well like if you if i listen to it now i'm like holy shit that sounds not 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 as good as i thought it did back then but um like for me it aged great like because because when i listen to it there may be things technically now that that don't seem as polished as as you could do it now but to me that's like a punk rock record you know it's like listening to an iggy pop and the stooges record it's just like it's a punk rock record it felt it felt like punk rock when it first came out to me and it still feels that way to me and it's like it just kind of has that raw edge mm. that will never go away. Yeah, I mean, I feel that for sure. I, I definitely think I probably have the same type of thing with some films as well because I don't technically really know anything about you know filmmaking or um, you know, cinematography or anything like that. And I'm sure there's people who look at you know who are really good at um, that kind of stuff who look at a film like Reservoir Dogs and probably see a bunch of grain and shit in the in the image that I just don't see or pay attention to and. Um, and you know look at that as a flaw whereas i just don't notice it or something yeah like reservoir dogs to me is a punk rock movie it's kind of the same thing it's Mm. like i could watch that movie could come on today 10 years from now and i'm just gonna sit and watch the whole thing because it's (laughs) it just fucking works it's great yeah it's a great movie um fuck there's another question i had about quentin tarantino as well oh yeah somebody on my discord who is also i I think they're an aspiring filmmaker um they they wanted to know your thoughts on film purists who insist on celluloid over digital like quentin tarantino and christopher nolan um so i actually don't know what celluloid is so i don't actually know what this person means by this question but but i think they mean they mean just film like literally film okay like versus just shooting on a dslr or whatever yeah film versus digital you know so okay um uh I, i i learned to shoot on film i like shooting on film it's fun um but the, uh, you know, for you, 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 you could think of it exactly like analog versus digital. Mm-hmm. Like if, if I asked you the same question of what do you think about, you know, musicians who are like purists for analog versus digital, the answer that you would give me right now is pretty much the answer that I will give you. <laughs> well, the answer that I have for analog is um, it just makes you think about the process differently because in digital, you're sitting at a computer and you're just clicking buttons inside your screen and it's very precise and it sounds really clean and really good and there's no imperfections in it um, versus when you 
do something with analog there's a lot of noise in all the signals you have to like walk around a room and plug shit into other shit and you have to you know make sure your gain staging is right you have to turn a lot of tactile knobs like it's just a very different process and it just makes you think about the whole thing differently and because results are harder to get in analog i think it makes you appreciate simpler stuff or at least for me it does like if i if i record something so simple as like a like a, a an acoustic drum kit playing a simple beat that just sounds very basic. I'm like, fuck yeah, that was a technical feat and I feel really good about it. But if I program a beat digitally in Ableton, it could be the same simple beat um, with just digital samples instead of a drum kit. And I just won't look at it as that cool because it didn't take so much, it didn't take as much effort. And therefore, yeah. like, you know, because of my appreciation of value and effort, you know, something that, that has a lot of effort invested, I almost immediately always see it as more valuable, right? Yeah, um, I that's, think, that's interesting. And, you know, like, you talk about how it's more difficult to do. Um, and that's that's the case in almost every way of doing art, you know, from music to film to whatever. When things were more difficult to do, you made stronger choices. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because um, and, and I've I've actually had that experience over the last few days because I've started using Fruity Loops. Um, just as like <laughs> a, I remember well, Fruity Loops. Yeah, so it's actually evolved a lot. It's a really deep program now. But I'm um, I'm doing like some video with my buddy. I think I had ben. like version one of Fruity Loops. It, it didn't even have tracks when I had it. It was like <laughs> it was just like that <laughs> little drum machine sequence. Yeah, I think. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my my buddy Ben, who writes music under the name The Flashbulb, uh, we want to do like a YouTube video where I review Fruity Loops and he reviews Ableton, and we're both sort of like you know from other the other side of the fence trying to figure out each other's daw um so i've been using that for the last few days trying to figure it out and the same same thing applies like i'll do something really simple but because it was so fucking hard for me to achieve it i'm like ah oh, that's a, that's a valuable thing right there <laughs> and it makes me like definitely stick more to to decisions for sure so yeah so when when you used to edit a movie um and if you've ever seen any like behind the scenes you know making of from movies from the 70s and um early 80s and stuff like that the way you used to edit a movie was the thing was shot on film. So like I said before, you make a work print, you make a copy of the film or multiple copies, and then they would load that film physically onto a giant machine. Um, you know, a machine that's like as big as a, I don't know, like a Prius or something. And then you, you load all that film onto the machine and you're literally running it through looking at it on a tiny screen, making physical cuts with a razor blade and then taping the film together to assemble the film. So imagine that process, you know, editing a movie like Apocalypse Now or something like that, as opposed mm -hmm. to what you can do now and you have everything on, a, on an NLE and you're just looking at it. And the fact that you have to commit to a razor blade cut to a physical piece <laughs> of film and a piece of tape to splice it together and then play it back and see how that is you're having to make really strong choices, mm. you know, and you have to really commit to ideas and not just, well, let me try to frame this way. Let me try to frame that way. Uh, let me cut a few frames out here. cut a few frames out there. What if I do this? What if I do that? You know, it's a whole different level of thinking. Um, this is actually, I'm not sure how much this actually relates to your original question about Nolan and Tarantino, because I'm not sure... You know, these days, the technology of cameras is has progressed to the point where, and especially if you're a guy like Nolan or Tarantino and you have like unlimited financial resources, um, I think Spielberg shoots on film still too. I, I don't really think shooting on film makes it harder for them in mm -hmm. the way that we're talking about. 
Um, right. And, and it's, it's the reason that they generally do it because it has a certain look and vibe to it or? They do it because it has a certain look and vibe um, okay. that I don't think most people can really detect. Um, I, I feel like I can. Like whenever I watch a Tarantino movie, I always feel like it looks very like warm and fuzzy and it kind of, it, I, I can, I think I can see like at least in his films, but for instance, Interstellar, I cannot tell at all. Like right. that looks looks to me like a digitally produced movie. It looks very high quality, whereas Tarantino movies always kind of look like they have this sort of teal, or not teal, like this sort of, you know, like this brown paper overlay to them sort of thing. Well, but on the other hand, I think, uh, you know, if you look at Fincher's movies, you know, something like, um, you know, something like uh, Gone Girl, I think is just a beautiful, rich looking filmic movie and he shoots everything digital. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if, if the thing can exist, like you're going to edit the analog shoot in digital probably, right? These days. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. which means if the thing can actually exist in ones and zeros as a file on your computer, it means it's recreatable digitally too. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it's the same with analog, right? It's like if you take a guitar and you record a guitar into your computer, the fact that it can exist as a wave file that you recorded onto a track in your computer means that it could have been generated by your computer as well. Yes, theoretically, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, yeah, it'd be a pain in the ass to do, for sure. This, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guitar player, too, so I'm not really sure what kind of software could do what I do. But uh... Uh, I mean, additive, <laughs> like insane additive synthesis or spectral FFT. Ex yeah, but, that, but that's the thing. It's like, yeah, that it, it's possible. It's just we don't have a computer it's yeah. quite complicated enough to do it yet, but it's coming. Oh, um, well, kind of. I mean, there's this style of synthesis called carpless strong. And essentially what that is, is you feed these little impulses of noise into a series of delays. Um, kind of, have you ever used tension or corpus in Ableton Live? That's what they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess like with um, the Fincher example, he probably like shot it on digital and then put it in, um, you know, whatever, Resolve or Final Cut or whatever, and then just sort of like applied some sort of analog filter to it, right? Yeah, I mean, you just you just get the look you want. Yeah, I got the first the first guys that really, um, on, on a feature film, the first guys that really sort of like did this analog to digital thing really hardcore was um, the Coen Brothers on that movie. Uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Mm. That was one of the first movies that was shot on film and then scanned uh, onto a computer, and they did all this really careful digital color correction that you could only do digitally you know um this like very micro control of every image or of every uh color value um and then they spit it back out uh to film and that was kind of like that kind of opened the pandora's box and after that it was just kind of like well why are we limiting ourselves you know <laughs> so even when you see a movie that's shot on film now it was heavily manipulated digitally uh, and a lot of times the, the digital tools that we have to manipulate stuff are so powerful now that a lot of times it's just invisible. Like what, did you see the Revenant? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. So the Revenant is like a beautiful looking movie, like stunningly beautiful to, I mean, I think, and, and you're looking at these images and they look so pure and so natural and, you know, they were shooting this thing on a skeleton crew, you know, they had like. They were they were flying out to these very remote locations with just like a couple dozen people. And you're going like, man, it's like they didn't do anything. They just pointed the camera and, and it just looked great, you know, because what could they do? They can't light out there. Well, they took everything that they shot back and they put it onto a computer 
and literally mapped grids over everybody's face and everything in the image. And they did like incredibly time consuming, incredibly intricate and incredibly expensive digital remanipulation of those images and color control of those images, you know, putting shadows on people's faces, adding contrast to scenes that had no contrast. Um, but they were able to do it in such a way that you just, you don't see it at all. It just feels, everything feels natural. And to me, that movie looks like it was shot on a large format film camera um, in terms of the color value. You know, it's really rich and really filmic and really beautiful, but it's ultra digital. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's the same with, um, I mean, you can, yeah, you can really achieve analog feeling stuff in the digital world for sure. Like for instance, uh, a good example of that in, in electronic music is this guy called Boris Brescia. He makes techno and it sounds very, in my opinion, like it, made, it was made from synths, like analog synths. And it, I watched a tutorial of his like two days ago and he said uh, he does everything in the box. He's never, he hasn't used a synth in his life. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's, uh, it, it kind of only goes one way though, right? It's really hard to probably make stuff look and sound very digital on analog gear, but the other way it's like super easy to, or not super easy, but it's possible to sort of get the analog vibe in the digital world for sure. Yeah, it's funny because like when I when I became, it's kind of like I saw, <laughs> it it makes me sound super old, but I kind of saw like this change happen like while I was, while I was an artist, you know? So when I, when I started out as a musician, it was like you recorded analog on tape and, uh, um, you know, ADATs were just coming out like digital tape. Whoa. Uh, but the idea of, you know, the first time I ever saw like a waveform of something that I played on a computer screen and realized that I could cut it up and move it around. I was just like, Whoa, like that was like a head exploding moment where you're just like, everything changes now. Right. Everything <clears throat> changes. Like nobody, the first thing I thought was nobody has to know how to do anything anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean like, cause like a, you think about, you know, the Beatles, right? Used to go in and they would cut these classic songs that you hear on the radio, these Beatles songs. And it was literally like the four guys in a room with two microphones playing the instruments and singing live. And they would just do like three takes of a song. And the take that they kept is the one that you still hear. Or or some singer coming in, you know, Sinatra or some shit, you know, and he's he's doing a recording session with a live orchestra constructed by Nelson Riddle. And everything is being recorded live. The, the, the orchestra is being mic'd with a couple of mics. Uh, uh, Sinatra's in a booth with a mic and you just cut the track. Boom, done. And then mm. that's the track. And you don't have any ability to like digitally manipulate that or edit it. It's just, that's what it is. And the first time I saw a waveform on a screen like that, I was like, I anticipated like Britney Spears. Like, well, now, now some chick can just go in a studio and just sing a bunch of shit and like, you know, they'll only keep the notes that worked and they'll pitch change those and they'll change the inflection and they'll put this into tune and they'll, they'll sing, you know, or a guitar player will come in, he'll play the part right one time. They'll cut that one. And that becomes the part every time. And they'll cover up over the ones where he messed up. And I was just like, man, nobody has to know how to do anything anymore. <laughs> it's like, this yeah, is amazing. I, mean, I, I think to some degree, um, that's not that negative of a thing though. Right. Because you can, uh, you lose something. Yeah. Like you, you lose, um, I guess the gatekeeperiness of somebody having to be super good to be able to do what Frank Sinatra does. But what well, you gain is being is super the good, like really a gatekeeper thing. Well, I mean, okay, okay, you know, it's you have to have the money to buy an instrument or something, and I mean, right. I guess you still need to have the money to buy a computer as well. But um, 
you, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, yes, you lose something in that respect, but you gain this other thing where now everyone can do the thing. So the high, the standard has been like raised in this really weird, complicated meta way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do understand what you're saying. Like you, you definitely lose something and you gain something else, but it's kind of, it kind of gets into these debates of like, okay, if you could, uh, if you could, um, you know, if we're able, if we're able to create technology where we can replace people's limbs and create replace people's physiognomy and like turn them into sort of like uh, cyborgs, so now suddenly anybody who any anybody now can uh, play Paganini's Caprices on violin, you know, without ever practicing, they can just do it. And now suddenly everybody can slam dunk a basketball from the free throw line, like Michael Jordan in that famous dunk contest did. You know, and it's just something that everybody can do, and there's really no there's nothing special about it every anymore. Like we would definitely lose something because we would lose the Michael Jordans. We would lose the, you know, we would lose the extraordinary people who are the ones that figured out how to do that. Um, but will we gain something, um, even more spectacular by the democratization of all that? You know, oh, I think now so. I mean, you know, for instance, we lost say the, the, or well you know i still don't think something like frank sinatra is, is not something to be in awe of like i think it's still very awesome but um yeah you know in the, i mean i can only really talk so much for electronic music because it's what i spend all my time thinking about but like uh in, in the you know say like, like like music right the the ability to to make music digitally we lose this like Thing where you know only a few people can do it and all of that kind of stuff but we gain this like insane music industry from it you know now that everything's gone to streaming and everything's digital and all this stuff it's like we've gained this like really insane community and stuff out of it i think that wasn't possible before well yeah definitely in terms of um connecting look all 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 of us artists are basically weirdos right you know we we're mm. we're like we're like weird people who have idiosyncratic ways of looking at things. And the great challenge of making art commercial is always finding somebody who's willing to foot the bill and take our weird ideas and actually like put them out there for other people to hear or see. That's been the great challenge, right? Um, so those walls are all breaking down. I mean, now it's like that wall doesn't exist anymore. You know, any any anybody out there can sort of find their audience, even if your audience even if what you do is so strange and so obscure that only 10 people in the world would ever like it, you can get to those 10 people. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the, yeah, the barrier to entry now is kind of low. Um, but that's, yeah, I think a good thing. Cause, uh, you know, also let's think about it this way. Um, let's say Michael Jordan was never able to get a basketball for whatever reason. And then we wouldn't have ever gotten the Michael Jordan, right? Because he would have never known that he could have been good at basketball. Um, I mean, obviously somebody like that, they have some sort of natural inclination to be good at stuff, but they also need the precursor of like getting the basketball and like getting a little bit of training and, and all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's like now with music, everyone has a basketball and everyone has the training. So we're not going to be missing out on any Michael Jordans in that regard. Yeah. And if anything, that's we'll just true. have more Michael Jordans, it seems like. But that's the thing. If there's more Michael Jordans, then it's like, what is a Michael Jordan? It's like a really fucking super Michael Jordan at that point is really what's going to seep to the top like a Skrillex, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to do something really extraordinary to stand out these days, especially in your genre, in, in your in your industry, in your genre. It's like, to me, the tools um, to create this music are so powerful and so easy to get, just so ubiquitous, you know, that it's like, 
to really stand out and be special in your in in your field is uh that's a challenge mm, for sure i wonder if that will happen in filmmaking too because um I mean, obviously you still need a camera and you still need to shoot and edit and all that kind of stuff, but eventually iPhones will be good enough. I mean, there's been feature films that have already been, you know, done on iPhone. All there really needs to happen now is that it just needs to be a independent distribution system, which it seems like Netflix would already almost have under control. For instance, with electronic music, you can just make whatever with free software, even um, put it up on DistroKid and then your shit exists on every platform, including Mm -hmm. Apple and iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff. I just wonder how long it is before somebody can, you know, use the iPhone they have and use the MacBook they have and how, uh, you know, and then just upload it to some sort of distribution system like DistroKid, but for film and then just have it on Netflix and Hulu and Vudu and all that stuff. Yeah, the, the tech is definitely there now. I could I could I could absolutely shoot a show on the new iPhones. They look fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. The 11s, man. I've mm-hmm. got one. It's, yeah, it's crazy how good the cameras are on it. Yeah, they look great. I could I could I could shoot a show on that. No problem. Really? Mm hmm. Uh, how would you, I mean, you'd obviously have to use like a tripod and lighting and stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, they've got, they've got, they've got all kinds of stuff for that. You know, they have like little steady cams you can use with iPhones. They, you know, the tools are all there. I mean, like the tools are there now, like nobody's done it yet. There, there's been some movies like, uh, Soderbergh shot a movie on iPhone. It didn't really look that good, but he just proved that it could be done. But I think you could do something now that was really good using those tools. Yeah, damn. I wonder, yeah, somebody should try and shoot a an entire film on an iPhone and like do the whole score on GarageBand or something. Right. Well, I mean, but why but why GarageBand? You know, like uh like that's the thing. That would be artificially limiting yourself, right? Because like the best possible way, you know, the best possible software to do a score is doesn't really cost that much either. Right. I guess uh Logic pretty much ships with all MacBooks at this point too, doesn't it? Uh, not, no, it does. I don't think it, sh- it didn't ship with my MacBook, but, um, hmm. but I mean, what's, what's, what's Ableton? Like, uh, oh, know, it's three, like 400. Th- well, for the, for the suite, I think it's about a thousand bucks. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess not. yeah, I don't know. The, the, the tools are, the tools are really easy to get, <laughs> you know? Right. Maybe that's where all these people asking these questions about where I should start in the film industry should start. Maybe they should just make their own movie on an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, give it a try. You know, <laughs> but I mean, that was I, I, I went to a, a, like a 10 month film school um, that was really it wasn't really like a, a normal film school when it because it, it had just opened up and they didn't really know what they were doing. So basically, it was just like this big building in Hollywood where they had a bunch of equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just took the equipment and just started making stuff, you know, so the best yeah, way seems- to learn is just to do it and make mistakes and do it wrong and then. Once you do it wrong, you figure out not to make that mistake again. Um, and, you know, you learn really fast by making mistakes. Right, right. Totally. Well, fuck yeah, man. That's been about 80 minutes. So I feel like that's probably a pretty decent conversation for people to listen to. Um, yeah, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to me for an hour and a half. No problem. It's fun, dude. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Um, is there any anything you're doing at the moment that you want people to go check out who listen to this? No, not at all. I'm uh, I'm just writing, you know. Um, I, I was lucky enough to land a couple of big writing gigs right before this all happened. So for me, it's just business as usual. There's no production at all, but I'm just writing scripts. Nice, um, awesome. Well, I guess uh, people can go watch Happy if they want. That's a really good show. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. You should definitely watch Happy on Netflix because more viewers. I also did a show with Grant Morrison 
Um, we adapted Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley book, uh, for a series that's going to be premiering on Peacock. So you can watch that too. Fuck yeah, man. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks again, man. You got it, dude. Anytime. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Build podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, Please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. (laughs) 